Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Lee Organic. Also with me today are Anastasia. Hello. Boya. Hello. Georgios. Hello. And I'm Will. Lee Organic is a PhD student at the University of Washington in the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering. Her focus is on the intersection of biology and computer science, using biology to do tasks traditionally done by computers. She works in the Molecular Information Systems Lab in close collaboration with Microsoft Research to make archival DNA data storage a reality. She also collaborates with the Security and Privacy Research Lab to make DNA sequencing secure. Lee, hi. Hey. Nice to be here. So tell us a bit more about your research interests. I started off as a traditional biologist uh, majoring in molecular cellular developmental biology when I was an undergrad. Um, I had a bunch of friends in the computer science department who were trying to convince me to take a class. Uh, Something along the lines of, it's so powerful, you won't know what hit you, this is the most amazing thing ever. One of them tried to teach me how to just write like, hello world and print, and I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. But after a few years of them kind of like wearing me down, I was like, okay, like I'll, I'll give this a try. I have space in my schedule. Um, so I took a Python, you know, programming for uh, data analysis for scientists. And I was blown away by like, oh, this is really fun and it's useful. I want to start incorporating this into my research. Um, so I started doing some programming for the lab I was working in at the time, which was focused on neuroendocrinology. And when I graduated, I knew I wanted to look for something at the intersection of both computer science and biology, because I liked both of those things, um, but I didn't want to drop one and focus on the other. And that's how I found Missile. So that's the lab I'm in now, the Molecular Information Systems Lab. And yeah, I kind of cold emailed and was like, I I think you guys are doing something with DNA. I don't know what it is, but please tell me. And uh, they had me on for a few interviews and those went well. And so I was the first full-time employee at Missile and that was back in 2015. But then it quickly grew. I mean, there were postdocs and other grad students. And now we're probably in the 30s or so, um, student, students and faculty and whatnot, maybe even more now. Uh, it's, it's hard to keep track because of that collaboration with Microsoft and how do you, how do you define who's working at Missile and uh, stuff like that. But yeah, that's kind of how I fell into this molecular programming um, synthetic biology kind of world. I kind of knew that you started in biology and then kind of moved more into computer science, but I didn't realize that you hadn't programmed before at all. So how was it going? Because I know we've heard from a few previous guests that they've gone from kind of computer science and then learned biology, but going the other way around is a bit more rare. How was that? It was a little rough. Um, I feel like when I'm explaining to computer science students about like, oh, this is what you need to know about biology to understand this problem set. Typically that explanation will last only about like two to five minutes. And then they have like a very solid understanding and can continue forward. Um, I have not found that to be the case um, when it's as a biologist, here's a computer science thing that you need to understand to move forward. Um, so there was a lot of time spent, you know, reading Wikipedia pages on basic concepts, um, sitting in on undergrad classes to try to absorb some of the knowledge to, to be able to move forward. So I'd say there, there's been a lot of side questing on this kind of, path to become a computer scientist and to become a computer scientist who can actually, um, I don't know, contribute back to the biology world. Um, integrating those two things together can sometimes be a little bit more difficult because there's not, you know, a perfect example problem online. Um, and so then you kind of, I don't know, it's been fun collaborating with people and just being like, Hey, I know you've done something similar. Can you help me out? Um, and luckily the students and postdocs at missile and then in the department that I'm in are really generous with their time and really patient. Um, so it's been a great experience. It's it's definitely just taken a lot of searching searching out uh, resources in, in sometimes ways that have not been as clear-cut as I'd like. So I guess that's one of the things I'm excited uh, to be working with all of you on the molecular programming textbook to kind of hopefully start to bridge that gap and make it kind of easier for everybody to jump on board. Uh, for those of you who don't know, could you elaborate what you mean by the molecular programming textbook? Yeah, so the Molecular Programming Textbook, uh, The Art of Molecular Programming, as I believe the title is, is a kind of a grassroots organization effort by a bunch of people in the molecular programming field uh, to try to gather all of those resources that biologists need and computer scientists need um, into one textbook. And so then there's different sections of the textbook, for example, um, sections that are focusing on uh, the interface of molecular programming 
and either biology or the interface of molecular programming in electronic systems like computers. There's also sections on structures, so um, DNA origami, things like that, and also circuits, so logic circuits implemented in DNA and other molecules and stuff like that. Because right now it's all just a collection of papers all over the web, um, various journals and, and fields. And so I think having it in one place is really exciting, and having it clearly presented in a textbook and not just reading a collection of papers is it's something I wish I had had. And, and that seems to be a common thread of people working on this textbook. It's something we, we all wish we had when we were starting. We're all coming from very different backgrounds. I think it'll really help people coming in to find out what they need to know. Uh, linking that back to you going into computer science, what would you say is the biggest surpri- was the biggest surprise for you going into that? Like the biggest thing that you didn't expect or know about computer science? That's a good question. I'm, I'm struggling to pick just one thing, but I think if I had to pick just one, I went into computer science kind of being like, oh, it's not a real science because somebody has engineered all that we know about computers. Like there, there's none of it that's like based in nature with an unknown origin. Like it's all, you can trace it back to the company that built it or stuff like that. So to me, it was kind of just like, okay, this is all just engineering why are people calling it a science? Where is the, I don't know, this, this sounds really cynical, but it was kind of just like, where's that magic of discovery um, that I had gotten used to from the biology side. But the deeper I got into computer science, it was like, oh wait, no, this is active research that's being done at every level because one, you can't possibly know all of the engineering that there is to know, but two, like there is a lot of stuff going down under the hood, you know, at the lowest levels of computer science hardware that, you know, sometimes you, you really don't know what's going to happen um, or you really don't know, I don't know, how how it's going to be implemented. Um, and so that's that's been kind of an interesting revelation to me. And it's given me a, new, a deeper appreciation for computer science, not just as a tool, but as a field of its own. And in a way, like the, the parallels to biology, I was very surprised by of, you know, biology, you do an experiment just in part to see if it works, not to see how well it works or like exactly how fast it works. Um, but I was surprised at how often that actually happens in computer science too. I, I think if I had to choose one thing that surprised me, that that would probably be it. With the with the point about discovery, I think I maybe first heard it in relation to maths that for a lot of people it feels a lot like they're discovering some pre-existing world rather than kind of just working out proofs on paper. And I can definitely see that carrying forward to CS in the way you're saying. So did you get into your current field of study, DNA data storage, because you were looking for something at the intersection between computer science and biology? Or were you originally interested in DNA data storage and then had to learn the computer science as a consequence of that? I was really just looking at that intersection of biology and computer science. Um, And it just happened to come up and I thought it fit my interest perfectly. I think when I graduated and was looking at that intersection, I knew I didn't want to do computational biology because in my view, a lot of times that is much more computer science heavy. And so I think I just didn't know the word for molecular programming, but I think that was probably what I was looking for um, from the start and just happened to luck across this project. Hmm. I guess for those who haven't listened to our previous podcast um, on DNA data storage, I wonder if you could just give us a quick refresher on what it is you do and um, like what exactly is DNA data, data storage? Sure thing. Uh, so the, the quick elevator pitch for DNA data storage is, um, say you have some data that you um, want to last for a very long time. So right now, if you had, say, um, you know, a few terabytes of files that you wanted to store for decades or hundreds of years, uh, you would probably put them in magnetic tape. That's kind of uh, industry standard for what lasts the longest and um, takes a while to retrieve it. It takes about 24 hours from the time that you want to recover your file from that kind of cold storage. But that's where DNA comes in and it says, well, instead of magnetic tape, which you have to rewrite every 10 or so years, uh, why don't we use DNA? It's also way more information dense. So we can fit, you know, terabytes of information in just a, a ridiculously small amount of DNA on the orders of a few microliters. Um, and so we've basically been kind of fine tuning that how do you go from digital data in, in binary to 
bases, the A, T, Cs, and Gs of DNA, and then what's the best way to store that for a long amount of time, and then um, you know what's the wet lab method that you want to use to access that DNA. Because the last thing you want to do is store a bunch of DNA in a huge pool and then read out the entire pool when all you want is, is one file. Um, so it's kind of just streamlining that whole process of going from digital data to DNA and then back to digital data um, with error correction in the midst of all that. I mean, it's this huge you know, intersection of a bunch of different fields. Um, but, but the overall work has, has been kind of streamlining that pipeline and figuring out how to stress it at each point. Where do you see DNA data storage fitting in uh, in terms of applications or just the future of society? Yeah, uh, great question. I think that the goal of the project is to ultimately replace current archival storage. I mean, and that's a long shot, but that would be the goal is to everything that you're storing it for, you know, decades to hundreds of years. I mean, there's nothing that currently can commercially store information for hundreds of years. And so that is where kind of DNA would fill that role of here's something that's easier to work with. It's more stable. It's more energy efficient to store it. Um, so it would it would really be targeting that long-term archival, also known as cold storage application. Uh, so this would th would not be replacing, you know, your typical like flash storage or something like that, where you want really rapid uh, recall. So what do you think are the biggest bottlenecks at this point in time towards getting there? Two things, uh, DNA synthesis and DNA sequencing. Uh, so the DNA sequencing has been dropping at price I mean, very quickly, faster than Moore's law. Um, so now you know we're able to sequence whole genomes for $1,000 and Illumina keeps promising that that number will drop to $100 in the near future. Um, Oxford Nanopore is a different type of sequencing that's also very promising and making a lot of uh, rapid development. So the sequencing side is getting better, it's getting cheaper, it's getting higher throughput. Um, but it's still not to the level where you would be able to recover, you know, terabytes of digital data a day. Uh, the, the world just doesn't have enough sequencers for that. It, it hasn't scaled uh, to high enough throughput for that yet. And then on the DNA synthesis side, it's still very expensive to order unique sequences of DNA um, that, that you have control over. It's very easy to get unique sequences of DNA by just like randomly um, synthesizing bases together. But if you want to engineer what those strands look like. It's still very expensive right now. Um, and again, companies like uh, Twist Biosciences and and others are rapidly increasing their throughput, but um, as of now, it's, it's still cost prohibitive. Um, so there are companies that are trying to commercialize this, but nothing on a large scale yet. What would you say are some of the kind of most immediate problems with going from the idea of, I want to store data and DNA to how you, you're actually implementing this in practice? That's a great question. I think it's important for, for, for me and others in the field to acknowledge that that's basically nothing about what I'm going to say is, is industry standard yet. There is no industry standard for this. So whatever I say, you can probably find a lab that's doing it a different way. That's probably just as fine, just optimized for a slightly different result. That said, um, it, so in our lab, what we have found is that if you have a strand that's too long, um, that strand can shear very easily. So this is something that comes up a lot in um, human genetics and in just genetics with other animals in general. If you're going to pipette out some DNA and that DNA is very, very long, you have to pipette very slowly. Otherwise, just the force of it being sucked into the pipette tip breaks the strand. Um, and that can be catastrophic. By very, very long, you mean how long? What's the size of that range? Oh, good question. I believe the number that I remember hearing a few years ago was if it's approaching the order of like one kilobase, uh, it's about a thousand bases long. I, I believe, I have to look that up. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it's it's on that order. Probably more like 10 KB. That also sounds reasonable. Yeah, at least scaffold for origami is more like 8 KB and like that oh, tends nice. to be okay to work with. Yeah, well, it could very well be 10 KB, <laughs> an order of magnitude even larger. But then the other thing is when you get long, even so let's say that it is 10 KB for the shearing forces, you also have um, uh, mutation rates to contend with. And so depending on how you have your error correction set up, going from the digital binary to the basis step, if you are not allowing for very much error correction and your strands get even longer, you have the potential for more errors to accumulate on that one strand. Um, and there's always a dance between the error correction and your information density because you can crank that error correction way way up and be able to recover it almost no matter what but then you've lost a bunch of information density 
Um, and so that is an, a very active uh, field of research in, in DNA data storage. Can you relate the error correction mechanisms you'd be using uh, in DNA data storage and how those would compare to like more conventional data storage? Is there any glaring differences between the two? Good question. Um, funnily enough, our lab uses Reed-Solomon error correction codes, which is very traditional um, kind of electronic error correction. Um, and that has worked very well for us. And we've in our lab, we haven't really seen a reason to come up with other types of error correction. Um, that said, there is probably no one right answer. Um, it's it's just kind of what we started using. So uh, this is by no mean a, you know, Reed Solomon is the only way. It's it's just a, um, yeah, in, in our view, we, we haven't come up with a, a, a novel correction code just for DNA because it acts so differently than electronic systems. On the subject of error correction and data fidelity, I wonder if you could touch on some of the research you're doing into um, the similarity search mechanisms, which you're implementing in, uh, which you're implementing, and like, what is a similarity search? Uh, why is it important, and why why would we want it for um, DNA data storage? So, in DNA data storage, uh, at least traditionally, what I've kind of been doing is this very exact random access. So we have this huge pool, thousands of files. We want this one file or we want these two files. How can we ensure that we only get those two files? And then on the flip side of that, there's similarity search, which is we have thousands, if not millions of files, and we want all of the files returned to us that look like this one query file. So for example, I have 1.6 million images. Um, I want all of the images that look like cats. And so um, that has been work that our lab has been doing, uh, led by Callie B, who has now graduated the lab, but who created this whole system of basically going from a huge collection of images, learning how to encode that into DNA in such a way that you have a query strand. So you have a way to say, okay, I want to look for all the images of cats. Um, then I can translate that photo into a vector that is 80 bases long. And then that vector gets translated into 80 nucleotides long. And then we take the reverse complement of that and introduce it to the pool and says basically like, okay, everything that you bind to, we're going to pull out with magnetic beads. And so what you're able to do then is do this um, surprisingly robust similarity search in DNA. And it's basically just a different way to search through a database. But am I right in saying that the, those cat pictures, they're not tagged with uh, a barcode that tells them it's it's a cat. You're you're encoded like they are. Are they essentially they're being encoded in such a way as to like uh, as such that they like the 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 strand which binds is kind of the representation of cats. So could I could I could I do similarity search for animals in general or black cats? Um, kind of like the way that similarity searches that are implemented in neural networks work. Yeah. So yeah, we are essentially just taking a neural network, um, VGG, in, in this particular project. Um, and so what we've done is made a very, you know, there is no one-to-one -one mapping of, you know, a bit flipped here means it's a cat and a bit flipped there means it's a car. I mean, this is just a very much machine learned encoding. Um, so when you want to do your query, you just select an image that you want it to return things like that. And, and then it will produce that query strand for you. I think the similarity search, it sounds like a very nice and elegant application to this because you're making use of the uh, um, complementarity interactions of the DNA strands. Are there any other kind of very natural computational algorithms that we can apply in this scenario? That's a great question. I took a class a few years ago on databases. And for my final project, I, I kind of did exactly this of like, okay, well, we can do random access, we can do similarity search, can we also, um, you know, do do other typical database functions. And I ended up basically just heavily use utilizing um, enzymes and other like nicking enzymes and other, I have I don't know, just, you know, gel extractions and, okay, what if we have a cleavage here? And it basically just became this convoluted mess very quickly um, for, for most of the applications. Not that you can't do it. It just, it's not going to be as simple as, um, 
you know, hybridization and magnetic feed extraction or PCR in the case of traditional DNA data storage. So I, I don't think that there's really a limit to what we could do. It's just kind of a, like, how much error are you willing to tolerate? Um, because that's one thing with DNA is, you know, with this hybridization, um, you, we're kind of exploiting a bug and calling it a feature. Um, because, you know, as we all know, when you have DNA and you only wanted to hybridize to one thing, that, that rarely happens. And so we were just kind of like, great, like, let's utilize that. And we're doing similar things with Cas9 now um, for, for similarity search. As of right now, we're not working on, or at least to my knowledge in the lab, yeah, we're not doing too many other search algorithms. Um, there are different ways that we're looking at random access with Cas9. We're looking at similarity search with Cas9 now. But I'm trying to, I, I don't think we're currently working on other algorithms. That's a great question, though. I wonder if you could elaborate on um, how you're using Cas9 specifically. Yeah, sure thing. So it's it's almost exactly the same mentality as the um, similar research with hybridization. You think of DNA hybridization being very messy, and we wanted to exploit that. And you look at Cas9, which is searching for its complement and then cutting where it's finding a complement. And of course, that is not perfect, as everybody who's tried to be perfect with Cas9 knows. Um, and so it was kind of like, great, now we have a different model. So instead of a, an 80 base feature vector, now we're limiting ourselves to about a region of 20 nucleotides. So we have this very small region in which Cas9 can kind of search and selectively cleave. Um, and so we're doing these experiments to kind of see, okay, like what's the difference between searching with hybridization versus searching with Cas9? Uh, maybe there's some really interesting tuning we can do with Cas9, for example, if you let it sit in solution for five seconds versus five hours. Um, maybe you can kind of tune, are you wanting a really exact similarity search or do you want to return um, a larger number of, of uh, query answers? You mentioned um, the cleavage. Um, so obviously, regular CRISPR-Cas9, you use your guide RNA, you cleave in, in the place where it's binding. Um, are you exploiting the cleavage for anything, or are you also looking into using DCAS9 to avoid the cleavage? That's a great question. We've talked a little bit about using DCAS9. Um, so the, for those who aren't familiar, DCAS9 is basically dead Cas9, where it just binds to the strand, but it doesn't cleave. Um, we decided to use just a regular wild-type CRISPR-Cas9 uh, because it, it downstream creates a much easier platform for us to then do ligation and sequence. Um, so the idea is that you come in with your Cas9, it cleaves, and everywhere that it cleaves will be an exposed phosphate. And then you can do pretty standard ligation and move right on to um, PCR and um, sequencing. And so it, the, the wet lab protocols just become much easier. So I don't think... I think using dead Cas9 could be a really interesting way to go. It's just not something I've thought a lot about, about how exactly to implement. So did you guys have to um, restructure your data encoding methods when when you're wanting to use DCAS9? Oh, no, sorry, not DCAS9, just normal Cas9. Because obviously you need that pan sequence um, in order to be able to uh, recognize and cleave. So did that affect your data density or your um, the, the ability to do error correction? Uh, good question. We, so far, I have not looked at the data density. So there's, there's, a, there's a trade-off between, right, when you had 80 nucleotides encoding your feature space, um, you just, you were able to encode a lot more data. When you now only have a, a feature that's 20 nucleotides long, that could be significantly more difficult, um, or not more difficult, but you're you're not going to encode as much information. So the types of returns that you're going to get to your query are just fundamentally going to be different. So I've never really looked at it in a data density kind of perspective. Um, that's an interesting question, because I think I've just kind of viewed them as fundamentally like slightly different architectures um, to perform slightly different methods of similarity search return. So how much of a constraint is data density? Because presumably you can just have really high degrees of redundancy with DNA. Yeah, uh, especially for traditional DNA data storage, uh, density has not been much of an issue yet, just because right in, in the size of a sugar cube, you can basically encode an entire warehouse of traditionally stored data. 
Um, so let's say you wanted to like double your redundancy, like, okay, now you have two sugar cubes and that's very different than two warehouses, the size of, you know, an acre or two or more. Some of these warehouses are absolutely enormous. Um, so it's, it's definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, especially there's some work that I was doing, uh, a few years ago that was basically looking at, okay, say you have this level of error correction, how much physical redundancy do you have to have? So for example, if you have a uh, really low rate of error correction, you're probably going to want at least, you know, when you're reading out in the sequencer, you know, 10 reads, 100 reads, 200 reads, it kind of, it just totally depends on your error correction. And then beyond that, if you're going to do PCR to extract those files, how many strands do you want in solution? How many copies of each strand do you want in solution? And so my work was kind of looking at like, okay, how far can we crank down this physical redundancy? Because there's, a lot of different types of redundancy at, at play here, right? There's the encoding redundancy, then there's the physical redundancy, and then there's kind of the readout DNA sequencing redundancy as well. Sorry, I'm still thinking about the similarities in search. Uh, so I wonder um, for um, for the non-Cas9 version, um, so you add a complementary strand to the pool and then use MagnetB to pull it out. But if we if we, if you use Cas9, then um, the um, then the um, the data that it was the feature will be cleaved. So what to do with the downstream process to extract the data? That's a great question. Uh, so basically, what happens is you're totally right. It cleaves off that um, data rich part of the strand, and then basically what's left in the middle is the data ID. And so when we sequence that, it tells us the exact data file that we need to go back and retrieve um, in our original electronic system. So um, so, so in that way, you will have to sequencing um, everything in the pool to to know what it has been cleaved. While in using magnetic peak for hybridization, you will only need to sequence the part that it gets pulled out. Is that right? Good question. Um, we have kind of devised a very interesting way to go around needing to sequence the whole pool for the Cas9 system um, and the magnetic system as well. So both we are only ending up sequence what got um, either cleaved or returned with magnetic bead. So in the, in the Cas9 system, uh, basically what we've done is we've said everywhere where the Cas9 cleaves, you're going to add on this ligation um, uh, sequence that we need for, in our case, Illumina sequencing. And what I've done is I've actually designed it so that there's a universal Cas9 on the back. And so then hopefully it's going to cleave there too. So what we've kind of got going on is this and logic. So if um, you have cleaved the front part because it is similar to your query and the back part is also cleaved, then both sides are going to have essentially what's a, a large glorified primer region. And so then what you can do is do a step of PCR that says, okay, exponentially amplify everything that was cut twice. Everything that was either not cut at all or only cut once gets linearly amplified. So you're able to drown out that noise and you're left with the signal that's hopefully returning exactly what you want. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I think like we've seen loads of work and, and this field of DNA data storage seemed to get more and more mature and arguably is kind of the closest to industrial realization in in the field of molecular programming and we've seen all of this industrial um investment and you know you're you're working close with microsoft research so you're very close to this i think a lot of people want to know how soon before i can go into azure or amazon ores and i can just put my data in ice ice cold glacier storage in in this dna system Oh, well, if you had asked the folks at Microsoft five years ago when they thought this would be realized, they would say, oh, in about five years. And then if you ask them now, their answer is, oh, in about five years. Um, so yeah, it very much depends who you talk to. Um, I would say, and actually, as a side note, for a while, there was um, listed on Amazon's website some option for encoding stuff in DNA. That disappeared very quickly from the website. It, it kind of was like, wait, what? Like, are they actually? Um, but, and then I know that there are some, especially startup companies that are really trying to focus on this problem. I would say it's going to be a little while just because you you can store 
data as a novelty if you're only willing to store on the orders of like millions of strands right now uh, because it is so cost prohibitive to get that DNA synthesized. I think in the future, in the probably the next decade or two, it really just depends on how much people want to optimize DNA synthesis. Um, but I would say probably sometime in our lifetimes that will become economically efficient enough. But again, this is this is coming from me as somebody who's like drunk the Kool-Aid of like, yeah, I totally think that DNA data storage is 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 something that that can be achieved. Um, which I should mention, I, I came in as a huge skeptic and just when I was was starting this job, was like, ah, it's a it's a neat application. I'll learn some stuff. Um, but over time, I, I have become convinced that, like, yeah, I think I think this does have a commercial future. Just it's going to take some time for the economics of it to make sense to implement on a large scale. But but currently, there's like there are several crossover points where if I wanted to store uh, a, a certain amount of uh, data, like there's a crossover point where I would stop using SSDs and I would start using hard drives. And then there's another crossover point where I would stop using hard drives and I would start using tape. Does there exist a crossover point for where I would want to stop using tape today and start using DNA? And how much data is that? Good question. Um, there probably is a crossover point if you wanted to store your data for more than a few decades. Um, so for more than like a few tape cycles, tape lifetime cycles then it might make sense for you to store it in DNA. Um, the downside is that unless you're willing to spend an exorbitant amount of money, um, you're, you're probably not going to be storing anything more than a, a few gigabytes of Could data. you consider the Svalbard seed vault as a long-term DNA data storage? <laughs> you know, it's really funny that you mentioned that. Um, I, I mean, I don't see a reason why not to, to consider that as a, a form of archival DNA data storage. It's really interesting, though, we um, kind of as a fun exercise in our lab, we were like, okay, what what if you sequenced like some of the seeds? And then you said, we want to store that in like our DNA data storage. And it's actually more information dense because of the compression, um, even with error correction. So it's kind of a funny, like, as a biologist, I would be perfectly happy calling that seed fault, like one of the best examples of DNA data storage that we have. But somebody else might come along and be like, aha, but we could totally improve on this and, you know, compress it by... I, I don't remember how much it was compressed by, but <laughs> so you've you've achieved higher data density uh, than nature, basically. For storing yeah, of, storage of genomes, that's probably an yeah, that's probably an argument you could make. I always try to think about like the genome also has it, like not just the genome itself, but a living system itself has so many other levels of error correction that we don't have. So you know, it has uh, nicking, strand repair. It has you know, oh, I, I can sense that there's a substitution here. I can fix that. And right now in our systems, we don't have that level of error correction. We have other error correction that tries to make up for that. Um, so I'm always a little bit hesitant trying to directly one-to-one -one compare density just because there are sometimes systems in, in living organisms that have um, come up with very clever solutions to get around these errors that we see. And do you think that mimicking these like biological mechanisms uh, is something that's worthwhile and uh, you'll see in the future with DNA data storage if we do stick with DNA? That's a good question. I think there will probably be applications where people are very motivated to kind of investigate, yeah, great, like the cell has these mechanisms. How can we implement that in a test tube? Um, I'm thinking probably more along the lines of... Um, not not so much our form of DNA data storage, but um, something right with like a seed vault or let's say, you know, we have um, DNA from, you know, these crime scenes. I'm thinking specifically of like rape kits where it's like you really want that DNA to be preserved because it might, you know, bring somebody closure someday. And so then it's probably not very feasible for us to like synth or sequence everything, resynthesize it in, you know, our error corrected way. And that, you know, that's just like a bunch of extra steps and a bunch of extra resources. And so an application of DNA data storage like that might really benefit from a like, hey, it's a one and done. Um, you're only going to collect it once and then you're going to uh, import this error correction kind of stuff. I think for our very synthetic example of DNA data storage, because we can control that error correction so much, um, and to some extent you, you don't lose that much error, you know, uh, you don't lose that much data density, there might not be as much of a push for it, but if there is 
an application where you want to store it for hundreds of years and you are starting to get very concerned about, um, you know, the uh, breakage rate of these bases, then I think it would become pretty wise <laughs> to invest in, um, you know, how do, how do we prevent that particular error from happening? So yeah, I think it just depends on, on, uh, on the application. Molpix is sponsored by Telebit Nanosystems. Telebit designs and produces DNA nanostructures, as well as standard and customized scaffold DNA strands. They would be happy to set up a call to discuss your project in more detail. If you are interested, please visit their website at tillybit.com or contact them at info at tillybit.com. That's tillybit spelt T-I-L-I-B-I-T. So I wonder if we can move on and discuss some of the, some of the concerns that have kind of been raised around DNA data storage in terms of the security concerns and ethical concerns, because I believe you've actually done some research into this. And like at first, like at first glance, it's not really clear to me immediately what kind of security or ethical concerns there might be, because it's just another type of data storage like, like any other, right? So I wonder if you could tell us. Yeah, so this work in particular was done, um, it was spearheaded by folks in the UW Privacy and Security Research Group. Um, Peter Ney has, has really been the point person on that. Um, Carl Kosher has also been extraordinarily helpful. Um, essentially, what we were looking at is, um, let's say you are sequencing a bunch of DNA. Would it be possible for somebody to, say, give you a sample of DNA? So this happens a lot in core facilities where, you know, you don't have your own sequencer in your lab. You send it to the core and it gets thrown in a sequencer with a bunch of other people's samples. And maybe somebody else sends in a sequence that when it's translated from the ATCG um, that the sequencer is seeing to an onboard computer on the sequencer, is it possible for us to submit a malicious sample that then when that particular series of zeros and ones are seen by the machine, the machine you know, freaks out and, and something bad happens. And so basically what that research was, was like, let's order a sequence of DNA and let's try to create a buffer flow over um, a buffer overflow attack. And so we were, you know, if we just used a standard Illumina machine, this is not possible. But you can imagine a future where, you know, something in the code has tweaked. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of things that are hard coded in the Illumina machine. And so if you keep those hard encodings, but the technology changes to maybe now allow for longer sequences, all of a sudden you could have a buffer overflow attack. So the work of this paper's work was really just trying to say like, hey guys, it's not possible yet, but we've got to have better standard practices to prevent this from being a potential in the future. Um, and then based on that, if you can kind of think, okay, well, that's, that's one aspect of, of security. But what if also, because say in a core facility like this, you're having so many different strands from so many different labs come in and ideally they're all barcoded. So you could say, okay, barcode A is lab A, barcode B is lab B, et cetera. Well, we know from sequencing that this isn't always how it happens. Sometimes there's, it's called a lot of things, bleed over, crossover, um, but sometimes some of the sample that's tagged for lab A will get into lab B sample. And normally this doesn't happen very much and it's not normally a very big deal. This was a big deal for some folks studying um, very rare mutations in cancer a while back. And so they wrote an open letter to Illumina that was just like, this is messing up our experiments. We only expect these things to happen, you know, 0.1% of the time but the bleed over happens at like 0.1% of the time, we're very frustrated. Um, so there has been a lot of work in trying to minimize this crossover um, pattern flow cells, um, which are a, a slightly different technology on the flow cell, um, will help, but it's not perfect. And so then we thought, what if we could exploit this? And so let's say you all of a sudden just start sending lots of samples to the core, and then you can kind of sample what other people are sequencing. So you're not gonna see all of what they're sequencing, um, but maybe you can steal an intellectual property or maybe in a really nefarious case, if you submit a sample that is only, let's say, um, a strand that corresponds to like sickle cell anemia, you can have enough bleed over into somebody else's sample to make them think that they have sickle cell anemia. Um, so instead of um, returning a true, you know, oh, you're homozygous for this wild type, you're fine. All of a sudden it's no, you're heterozygous now, you know, we've had enough bleed over to flip our 
classification algorithm. And, and so now we think that you have a different genotype than you actually do. Um, and that can be harmful in some instances. Um, so some of the research was also, you know, how can we fool a sequencer in that way that, that is perhaps a little bit more possible right now. Those are really interesting. This, the second one you mentioned of kind of, you send loads of jobs and then kind of sneak out some data is reminding me of like this, um, I think it's called Meltdown and Spectre, these, these big computer vulnerabilities that were found a few years ago. Um, but the, the first one I, I also wanted to talk about, so this, um, uh, exploiting buffer overflows and, um, I don't know if they specifically did buffer overflows. I know there was a bit of a controversy, maybe University of Minnesota, I might be misremembering, where they introduced bugs into the Linux kernel. And uh, I wonder if someone might intentionally introduce bugs into Illumina. Um, but assuming that we don't have a malicious actor, and suppose that Illumina decides that they're going to use um, a more modern language such as Rust, which theoretically makes buffer overflows impossible if you're using it right. Are there any other exploit mechanisms that could be made use, taken advantage of? On the aluminum machine specifically or, or other? Or I guess in, in general, if you're sequencing data, is there any other way that you could try to get uh, remote code execution? I'm <laughs> in true privacy and security fashion. I'm sure there is. We just haven't thought of it yet. You should take it to DEFCON and see what the hackers there are able to to do. Exactly. Yeah. No. I mean, it's yeah. If if I've learned anything from collaborating with that group, it's that nothing is secure. <laughs> um, it, it's you can you can try to make it more secure, but um, I mean, I don't want to say that nothing is secure because in a lot of these, you know, it's healthcare a lot of the time with sequencing, you know, and that is not something I would ever want somebody to be like, well, it's not secure. I'm not going to get this very important genome test. Like, that's definitely not the message I want to send, but it is a message I want to send to Illumina and these other companies of like, hey, I know you think it's probably not possible, but you really need to have a dedicated team, you know, trying to figure this stuff out. Those were all quite terrifying um, exploits on the uh on the synthesis uh, on the sequencing side of things i wonder if there are any other kind of similar exploits on the synthesis side i remember hearing about one potential one um where scientists uh, like where a hacker could kind of do a kind of man in the middle attack in between scientists trying to order uh, parts of a viral genome to assemble a virus in the lab and switching it out for a more dead like for a deadly virus so that they accidentally assemble a deadly virus in their lab but I wonder if there are any kind of uh, things in like security concerns like that on the synthesis side of things for DNA data storage. Yeah, I mean, that's been uh, something that people have been interested in since synthesizers became a thing like in the 1960s. Um, and so there is a list of sequences that are not allowed to be synthesized. And so every company that does synthesis, you kind of have to reference this list and be like, okay, is it any of these sequences? Unfortunately, uh, Peter looked into that list and it it looks like if you're not careful, you could just order something that's like a base or two off, which maybe has the same um, practical execution in the lab, but then passes this test. And so it's it's a little unclear. So they could make use of your similarity search. Yeah, to that. <laughs> yeah basically. Um, yeah, just it just kind of by it. If you're if you're a company that's only doing exact matching, you're you're probably going to get bit by this, or not probably. There's really not that many people like looking at this list and being like, "Oh, what can I order from it?" Because um, there are a lot of downstream things that you then need to do to that DNA. It's not just, "Oh, I have the tube of DNA and, and now I've released anthrax to the world." You know, it's it's not quite how that works. Um, but so there are things. It's a little unclear how these companies are um, utilizing this this list, and you know, how is this list updated? It, that's not something I know a lot about. Um, but, but there is at least some security attempt trying to be made on the DNA synthesis side. I just, I'd, hopefully this won't be a viable attack vector, but this just made me think, you know, suppose we're in some future where all of the different, um, data storage and cloud storage services have DNA data storage on as an option. And then someone 
decides that they're going to store the genome of anthrax or something in their vault. I just wonder what kind of, yeah, and, and okay, that's not then going to be packaged, so it's not really a problem, but I wonder if there are any kind of biohazard exposure risks to, pe to the people who are working in these warehouses. Um, I guess not, but um, yeah, I, there are all these oh. different things you can think of. I don't know. I I just came as <laughs> it's funny you were talking about like potential attack vectors. Will I I just thought of another one. I, I wonder if it's possible for someone to um, because the like the DNA is stored um, in solution presumably, right? Or do you dry it out into a pellet? Typically, after synthesis, uh, industry standard seems to be you you dry it out, you lyophilize it, and then ship it where right. it needs to go. But when you want to do the random access, you need to obviously solubilize it. Yeah, so correct. is it po is it possible for me to, um, what order like in the future? Amazon has got AWS, uh, Glacier, whatever DNA storage, and I order. I think we're both going to end up on a list. And, <laughs> but I I I I design a I design a sequence which folds into a catalytically active DNA zyme. Which just which which is a nuclease. Um, can I order? Is that a potential attack vector? I order a piece of DNA which acts as a nuclease when folded, and it just chews up all the data at Amazon's servers. I mean, I think the answer <laughs> is you need to get a grant and study this. <laughs> you could be the new generation of ransomware writers. <laughs> oh yeah, we will send this sequence which act which 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 activates this nuclease if you don't pay a million dollars. <laughs> um what about uh kind of the other way around so in the far far future when we've got nanobots in inside us um how worried should we be about future compromisation of like kind of people writing malicious programs say like that enter into your healthcare nanobot systems um is there something where worried enough about or is this not something to worry about where do you stand on that that's a great question um i mean like anything i'm i'm much more cautious and so i'd be like sure start worrying about it like let's devote some resources to making sure that this doesn't become a problem in the future i would say that realistically it's probably a fairly um it would be probably more unlikely for an attack like that to be executed in part because this biology stuff is so complicated. And so it's like, oh, this attack vector, instead of targeting the tumor that I'm supposed to, I'm gonna target your healthy red blood cells. Like that is several PhDs work of effort, if not like decades of like thousands of people trying to figure that out. And so it's a little bit harder for those kinds of attacks to be executed just because it's like, oh, okay, like, sure. <laughs> if you wanna do that, like go for it and let us know when you succeed and then okay, you've succeeded, well, then patent it, or not even patent it, but just like get that out into distribution and then you'll be a millionaire. So why are you doing this as an attack vector? Um, so that's also kind of something that um, collaborators of ours, uh, particularly Rob Carlson, is is pretty um, adamant about is in incentivizing people in such a way that to do these malicious attacks is just not incentivized at all. Um, and instead incentivizing this kind of more productive behavior, um, if, if possible. Um, and so that, that's something that some people feel very strongly about is just like, let's set up the incentive so that never becomes an issue, um, which I also think is a pretty promising approach. And I guess biology has tried for billions of years to make a virus that <laughs> will get rid of us. And well, we, we haven't, well, we haven't yet gone extinct. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's maybe give that another hundred years before we reevaluate that. And I actually helped develop the course on the neuroscience of sex. And I was wondering whether you can think of any ways to bridge this with molecular computing, maybe new technology for doing basic research. So uh, just for some context, so the, the course neuroscience of sex was developed with um, a postdoc at the lab I was at at the time. Um, and it was basically a look at sex differentiation in mammals specifically. Um, and so, you know, we were reading papers on experiments done in the 60s on guinea pigs and it was like oh okay like we really have at, at that point in the 60s like no idea how any of this molecular development in in utero or 
like at, at a very young age, you know, how are the sex hormones affecting various structures in the body? How are they affecting structures in the brain? Um, and so the class was really like just taking a very hard look at how did we find out this information? Um, what is the role of sex hormones in mammals? Stuff like that. I will say, um, I haven't really thought about that question, but as you were asking it, it reminded me of a study done in the church lab. Um, a lot of people might remember seeing like that racehorse that was that was running and it was like, oh, like we've stored a GIF in DNA. But the real interesting part of the paper there was the fact that what was happening was it was basically looking for a cellular event to happen. And as soon as that a cellular event happened, um, a synthetic strand of DNA would be spliced into the genome. And then it would happen in order. So you could say, okay, this happened, then this happened, then that happened. And then uh, let's say, you know, the animal passes away you can read the genome and say, oh, like this is what was incorporated. We have this kind of like clock mechanism um, that's recording what happened. And that is extremely valuable in developmental biology. Um, so there are these kind of, I don't know if that would be purely synthetic biology or if some people would consider that molecular programming. Um, the lines get blurred. I know, Georgios, you have strong thoughts on that. Um, but I would say that things like that would be very welcome in developmental biology as a very non-invasive way. So instead of, you know, having to sack these mice at postnatal day one, two, three, four, or five, and doing it, you know, dozens of times over to have high confidence, now you can, you know, maybe have, have fewer animals um, and get a much more precise kind of recording. So, so that kind of thing makes me really excited for this kind of non-invasive investigation. Is there anything else that you all are really excited about for the future of um, kind of our field as a whole? So many things. Um, so I'm, I'm looking to graduate in the next like year and a half or two years and, you know, went through that, like, am I employable? Are there, is there anything I'm qualified to do? Um, and I think a lot of people go through that, but especially it was like, well, molecular programming isn't really like commercialized. You know, am I, am I going to be hireable? And the more I'm looking at various companies out there um, and just other research that's going on, it's kind of like, no, I think this kind of technology is here to stay. And this intersection of computer science and biology is going to continue to get applied to very different aspects of our lives. Um, and that makes me really excited and that, you know, maybe it will be more energy efficient. That's something we've looked at in our lab that we care a lot about. Um, so, you know, that's great for the environment and for the world. Maybe these, this will help with healthcare, which is also, I don't know, a really powerful motivator for me. Um, you know, can we improve quality of life on all these different axes? And so that kind of broad, higher level field of molecular computing. I mean, that makes me really excited. Um, at a lower level, I mean, there, I, I feel like I see some new technique every every month that I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Like, maybe this will help with X, Y, and Z. And so I, I don't think I can answer at a low level what I'm excited about because I'm just a little too excited about everything. But yeah, ultimately, like a lot of optimism. I think that's the great thing about our field that it's just everywhere you look, there's something new that's exciting um, and just learning new stuff all the time. Thank you so much for joining for joining us, Lee. Stay tuned to our newsletter for details on our next podcast episodes. And thanks for listening.